we are ever grateful that you have decided to make such as we your chosen, precious children. And your children honor you this morning, O Lord. And we worship you, and we pray your presence with us by the Holy Spirit. And we pray in Jesus' name, amen. You may be seated. All right, I'm going to ask you, in the 11th in our series of the Gospel Tales, to turn to the Gospel of Luke this morning, chapter 17. Chapter 17 of the Gospel of Luke. Um, A couple of introductory notes I would tell you. I've probably preached from this passage in the last 26 years, I would say, maybe a half a dozen times. This particular passage has come up. This is a teaching of the Lord that is so fundamental to the Christian faith, we dare not even think of the Christian faith apart from it. And yet, we fall short, and yet it is one of the most convicting passages of Scriptures for the people of God. And I can tell you, over the years, that I know that for a fact because of the commentary I receive after I talk about these verses. So let's go to these verses this morning. Chapter 17 of Luke, the first ten verses. And so Luke writes, Then Jesus said to the disciples, It is impossible that no offenses should come, but woe to him through whom they do come. It would be better for him if a millstone were hung around his neck and he were thrown into the sea than that he should offend one of these little ones. Take heed to yourselves. If your brother sins against you, rebuke him. If he repents, forgive him. And if he sins against you seven times in a day, and seven times in a day returns to you saying, I repent, you shall forgive him. And the apostles said to the Lord, increase our faith. So the Lord said, if you have faith as a mustard seed, you can say to this mulberry tree, be pulled up by the roots, be planted in the sea, and it would obey you. And which of you having a servant? plowing or tending sheep, will say to him when he's come in from the field, come at once and sit down to eat. But will he not rather say to him, prepare something for my supper and gird yourself and serve me till I have eaten and drunk and afterward you will eat and drink? Does he thank the servant because he did the things that were commanded him? I think not. So likewise you, when you've done all those things which you are commanded, say, We are unprofitable servants. We have done what was our duty to do. Oh, Father, in Jesus' name, give us such faith and refine it in us according to your word and according to these verses, Father, we pray in Jesus' name. Amen. Was I right? Pretty convicting. But Lord, I've done everything. You've broken even. You haven't even been fruitful yet. All you've done is what you were told. That was our contract when we started out. Well, let's get into it. Verses 3 and 4. Jesus begins with this. Take heed to yourselves. You know, we tend, as we go into Scripture, to look at the sins of those in the Scriptures. When we look at the Israelites of old, mumbling and grumbling and murmuring, and we're always told of these things, and we think, boy, they're so unfaithful. But let these words ring in your ears when you think that. When Jesus rebukes the Pharisees, let these words ring in your ears. Take heed to yourself. If your brother sins against you, rebuke him. And if he repents, forgive him. Sounds like a commandment to me. And if he sins against you seven times in a day, and seven times in a day returns to you saying, I repent, you shall forgive him. Thankfully, you're all thinking, my brother sinned eight times in a day, and I'm done with him. I hope you're not thinking that. 
But let me set up this gospel tale for you, if I may. This is a passage where Jesus, the itinerant preacher from Nazareth, is going around Galilee and Judea, and he's preaching the word of God with his band of fellow friends and apostles, right? And this is a passage where Jesus takes a moment away from traveling and preaching and from arguing with the Pharisees and the other elites, and he focuses on the admonishment of his close disciples. Friends, this is Jesus talking to us. He's pulled us aside, and this passage is for us. All right? From the previous chapter, we read this commentary from Luke. Now the Pharisees, who were lovers of money, also heard these things, and they derided him. They were, also, they were always deriding him. Make sure that we're not deriding him because he's convicting and hard and even harsh in his teaching. I always stick with the adage of Martin Lloyd-Jones who said, God's word never hurts God's people. Mild or harsh, read the brochure we wrote 26 years ago about our church. We receive God's word whether it's mild or harsh because God's word doesn't hurt God's people. All right? You ever get a harsh word from your father who you know loves you? Heeding it will not hurt. It'll only help. And so this little editorial note from Luke is in response to the Pharisees' objection to the last few parables that Jesus told, which were directed at them. All right? And so we have the Savior facing the taunt and the derision of a tireless onslaught of criticism and testing. And he takes this moment of hiatus with his close disciples. And Jesus said to the Pharisees during his travels, he said, you are those who justify yourselves before men, but God knows your hearts, for what's highly esteemed among men is an abomination in the sight of God. And of course, the diatribe was followed up with the incriminating parable of Lazarus in the rich man. Now, I don't have time to tell you about Lazarus and the rich man this morning, but I hope you know what it is. And if you don't know the parable, it's in the previous chapter, it's in the previous verses, go back and read it after the service, or in your devotions this evening. But he preaches Lazarus and the rich man, let me tell you, Lazarus is a poor man, and he's the good guy in the parable, and he goes to heaven, and the rich man just assumed he would go and didn't go. Um, and so the parable prompts him to direct a similar teaching to his own people. Well, why wouldn't he? Friends, we're as sinful as the world. Pastor Ken used to say, you're not better than the world. You're better off, but you're not better. That's what he used to say. You're better off, but you're not better. All men suffer with the same disease, friends, and it's called sin, and that's the personal pride of men. Pride is our sin, friends. Men who presume themselves deserving and others undeserving. And in this case, the subject is forgiveness. So the Lord took the time to teach on the fundamentals of faith to his closest associates in ministry. He took this moment. Luke doesn't give us a lot of direction, but I'm assuming they probably came to a clearing of the side of the road and the, and the uh, multitudes had dispersed for, the, for, the, for a time. And Jesus took his disciples away and gave them this teaching to them, which he does periodically throughout the Gospels. So these same 12 saints were being made ready to take the reins of ministry when the Savior was taken from them. That's what the book of Acts is about. It's the Acts of the Apostles. Jesus is out of the picture, so to speak. He's at the right hand of the Father, right? Sent the Holy Spirit in his place. And so it's necessary that the Lord affords them with this private teaching session, and so he does so. And so it's necessary 
that he brings their focus to the essentials of the Christian faith. He saw how this convicting sermon on forgiveness shook them up a bit. Friends, there is nothing so essential to good Christian deportment than understanding the importance of forgiveness. And that entails forgiving and being forgiven by God. And so we have our verse. And so Jesus begins with these words, take heed to yourselves. He's speaking to his own. He's speaking to the church. In other words, friends, it's easy to see how other men, it's easy to see how wicked men presume themselves deserving of God's forgiveness and see others as undeserving. So take heed that you do not become like those wicked men. That's what it means. Take heed to yourself. Our doctrine informs us, and it's been my personal observation, I can tell you, that this is the condition of men in general. Most men seem to be bound up in judging others by their deeds and themselves by their good intentions. We tend to give ourselves a pass, seems to me. That's why he said, take heed to yourself, because he knows we tend to give ourselves a pass. So Jesus offers stern warning in this regard. It's as if he's saying to them, it's as if he's saying to them, you see how I must treat the Pharisees? You see how I must reprove them for their faults? Don't be like them. Don't need to be reproved for your faults. How many times does the Lord have to point out the wickedness of wicked men and the hypocrisy of hypocrites in order order that we take heed to ourselves not to learn their ways, not to excuse ourselves on the occasions when we do imitate their wicked ways? With regard to prayer... He said this to them from Matthew 6, where Pastor Billy's reading this morning. He said, when you pray, you shall not not be like the hypocrites. So he uses people as examples. He, He reproves them, and he says, and don't be like them. For they love to pray standing in the synagogues, on the corners of the streets, that they may be seen by men. Assuredly, I say to you, they have their reward. Therefore, do not be like them. So let's be plain here. It's my experience that Christians are at least as likely as the world of men to commit the sin of unforgiveness. I was young, and now I'm old, the psalmist said, and I've seen fellow Christians hold a grudge for slight or serious offenses with a measure of self-righteousness that should have been purged from them at the moment of their rebirth. Now, I hope you're not sitting there saying, Boy, I wonder who he's mad at this morning. (laughs) I'm not, and I have no one in mind, all right? So let's put that to rest. But I always say, when someone says, after the the sermon, when they say, Pastor, uh, was that for me? I always say, I guess so. (laughs) The answer is, yes, it was. Um, At the moment of our rebirth, that's the moment when we should realize the importance of forgiveness, giving and taking. Or giving and receiving, I should say. Friends, rebirth is a spiritual awakening that allows the sinner to see that he is an offense to God. And he's in need of forgiveness. You can't be born again without recognizing you're a sinner. That has to be known. What are you crucifying? What are you born into? Right? Regeneration. Rebirth, we call it. Right? It's the new birth. It's the crucifixion of the old man. That's the old you, the apostle calls it. Calls it the old man. It's the man you once were and need to keep down in yourself. The person you were only a moment before you were reborn. That guy should not emerge anymore, or that woman. 
It's the putting on of the new man. It's the exchanging of blood-stained garments for a clean white garment. You may refer to regeneration with any New Testament metaphor that pleases you. Whatever scriptural phrase you wish to attach to your renewed spiritual understanding, it happened the moment you received forgiveness. That's when you were reborn. The moment you received forgiveness for your, for your noted sins. The ones you're now cognizant of. Whatever, um, so what is forgiveness then? Forgiveness is entrance. You can't get in without it. Forgiveness is entrance. It's the entrance into the embrace of deity. It's entrance into the fellowship of the saints. It's the entrance into a whole new world of refreshment, of spirit, of understanding, of mind. It's entrance, friends, into the kingdom of God now and for eternity. There's no one admitted that's not forgiven of his sins. You know, you're not going to bump into a sinner in heaven. Right? You're not going to be walking around the streets of gold. You know? No sun up in the sky, but it's brighter than day. You're not going to be walking around and go... How do you get in here? (laughs) I mean, that's just not going to happen. You're in there because you're forgiven, and no one gets in without it. What does it say on your bumper sticker, Dave? The kingdom of God has walls. (laughs) The kingdom of God has walls. The kingdom of the devil doesn't. Um, But I'll leave that for now. There's no one admitted that's not forgiven of his sins. It's the fundamental operation of salvation, forgiveness. Jesus died to pay for your sins. He bought your forgiveness. It wasn't free. Christ died for our forgiveness. We cherish his sacrifice for our forgiveness. Forgiveness is the beginning of the new life. That's why we dare not preach a gospel absent of the reality and the pervasiveness of sin. Friends, sin isn't just there. It isn't just an unfortunate consequence of life. It's the ruination of the soul of man. You're not dented. You're not scratched and dented you're ruined in sin and need a savior and that's what the gospel is and we best not tire of preaching that if we do not take sin seriously how can we take the sacrifice of christ seriously god gave him up for our sins so god in every way takes sin seriously sin is the barrier between us and god forgiveness is the entrance as we've said and so the savior teaches on the various aspects of it to his beloved. So just as the Pharisees need to see their sin and cannot see it, so do the close disciples of Christ need admonishment in this regard as well. For as Paul wrote to the Romans, all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God. No exceptions. You know, there are a number of parables in this regard that instruct the saints that as they've been forgiven, so they must forgive others. You remember some of those parables? Remember the two debtors? Right, one guy owed some money, and the and the uh, and the debtor came, and he, uh, or the creditor rather, came to him, and he forgave him, and then he went out to a to a, a a man that owed him, and he shook him down for his money, and the and the creditor came back and said, as you treated him, I'm going to treat you. Let me just give you a little hint. When you read that parable, the one doing the shaking down in the end, that's God, and he's punishing the man who didn't forgive. A number of parables along those lines. The concept of forgiveness is enshrined in the essential prayer of the Christian faith. Forgive us our trespasses as we forgive those who trespass against us. We've received and now we must give. 
Forgiveness is the essential act of the saint who's determined to imitate the essential act of Christ. To belittle, to forget, to resist this essential act of faith is to heap sin upon sin. And so Jesus teaches plainly that the first lesson of forgiveness is that it is an act of the will. Friends, it's not automatic. It doesn't just happen. You have to do it. It doesn't happen by itself. It must be directed by the mind and the will and even the emotions of the saint who's been offended by another. It's an act of will. Just as love is an act of will, you decide who you're going to love or you decide who you're going to forgive. And so the Savior takes note that the same tendency in the unsaved remains in residual amounts in the saved. The saint is as likely to withhold forgiveness as the sinner. The apostles of Christ are as likely as the Pharisees to withhold it. So he takes a moment and brings them aside and teaches them on the subject. And so the first lesson is take heed to yourselves. In other words, you're not exempt from this duty of forgiveness. Christ has forgiven, and so we forgive. The second part has to do with offenses. Friends, offenses are real. They're not only real, but they're pervasive. Jesus said it's impossible that no offenses should come. It's impossible that no offenses should come. Friends, I just want to take a, 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 a little, make a little side note here. Without forgiveness, what relationship could you maintain? You couldn't maintain a marriage without it, certainly, right? You couldn't maintain a friendship without it. You can't maintain, really, any human relationship at all if there's no willingness or understanding that there's some redemption for previous offenses, right? There has to be some way back. Oh, the minute someone sins or offends someone else, it's done. There's no society without forgiveness. It's that essential. It's the glue of every relationship we have. But offenses are still real. And according to Jesus, they're pervasive and they're going to happen and they're going to continue to happen. And as long as those offenses are out there, so long as we offend God and one another, we have to be mindful of the reality that offenses are there and they're real and we're offensive as well. And so Jesus said, but woe to him through whom they do come. In other words, when you're the offender, you're in sudden trouble with the Lord. And he punctuates the sin by ascribing the punishment. It would be better for him if a millstone were hung around his neck. Now, I'm assuming everyone knows what a millstone is. If you don't, go up to the War Memorial Park in West Bridgewater, and, they, and they've got those old millstones. They're big donut granite pieces this big with a pole down the middle, and they, and they grind grain between them. That's a big stone. If they tie that around your neck and throw you in the ocean, you're pretty much doomed. You're not going to make it up. You're not going to swim to the top with the millstone and catch your breath and try again. So <laughs> that's pretty stiff punishment, it seems to me, that he prescribes there. And he says if, uh, it would be better for, for, a man, for an offend, offensive man if a millstone were hung around his neck and he were thrown into the sea than that he should offend one of these little ones. I'm going to give you a short note here. I'm not of the opinion that little ones refers to children exclusively. Of course it could, but I believe that it refers to the vulnerable consciences of other disciples among us. So number two, offenses are real. Number three, the Lord allows that we acknowledge our offenses. In other words, you can tell the offender that he's offended you. We're not required to keep silent about it. 
we're allowed to vent our frustration to the offender. However, I would tell you at this point that this is not the only teaching from the Lord regarding offenses. Remember Matthew 18? From Matthew 18, we're told to bring our grievances only to the offended party. That's what we do. We bring our grievance to the offended party. We're not given leave to complicate things by bringing in other parties. Not until the offense has been heard and gone unheeded do we bring in witnesses. You remember the process from Matthew 18. We don't go around barking about another man's sins, even his sins against us. A second caution is this, I would say in this regard. Do not allow your frustration to overcome you, friends. We all get offended, some more easily than others, all right? But that's not our life now. Our life isn't, I've been offended, I can't carry on. The new birth should not make us weaker, friends. It should make us stronger against these things, you see. We should be less in order to take offense than we used to be, not more. Can somebody say amen or shake your head up and down? <laughs> I guess in Poland, when they say yes, they shake their head this way, I've been told. Maybe I got the wrong country, but in other places they don't. Someone said Italy? No, it's not Italy, I can tell you that. <laughs> the proverb says, He who's slow to anger is better than the mighty, and he who rules his spirit than he who takes a city. Friends, you've been offended. It's not the end of the world for you. James said it this way, Beloved, let every man be swift to hear, slow to speak, slow to wrath, for the wrath of man does not produce the righteousness of God. The wrath of man does not produce the righteousness of God. And let's not forget this stern warning of the Savior from his great sermon on the mount when he wrote this, or rather, when Matthew wrote this, If you forgive men their trespasses, your heavenly Father will also forgive you. If you do not forgive men their trespasses, neither will your Father forgive you your trespasses. Did you catch the conditional clause? Conditional clause means if. If something happens, something else will or won't happen. So if you forgive others, God forgives you. If you don't forgive others, God withholds his forgiveness to you. If you forgive, you're eligible for forgiveness. If you do not, you're not. We should take note that the Lord's teaching on forgiveness is nothing less than a salvation verse. That's why it's so essential Jesus pulled the apostles aside and told them these things. And as we've noted, there's no one in heaven that's not been forgiven. At the same time, there's no one forgiven by God who has not forgiven others for their trespasses. You know, Pastor Ken used to tell a story of a man who he offended. And uh, the man was very offended. And he came to Ken and he told him of his offense and Ken was sorry for his offense and he, um, and he uh, asked for forgiveness and the man forgave him. But he didn't come to church. He didn't come back to church. And many, I think it was many years went by and he saw the man on his front lawn one day and he pulled in and he said, why haven't you been to church? And the man said, I was so offended that day you did this such and such thing to me. And he said, Pastor Ken said, but you forgave me for that. You can't take it back. You either did it or you didn't do it. And he reminded him that he had already been forgiven. You've got to be careful about those kinds of things. This is important to the Lord. It's, like a, it's a salvation verse. It's undoubtedly why the apostles pleaded for an increase of faith. Friends, this is a huge burden. Apparently, this is not easy to do. Now, you might say, oh, no, I'm very forgiving. I just forgive everyone. There's an offense out there waiting to try you in that. 
Who can become this fountain of forgiveness of the free flow of personal offenses that the Lord Jesus himself readily admits abound in this life? Who could be so forgiving as that? I'll tell you who. All believers who possess the Holy Spirit. That's who. So who can become this fountain? Those who are led by a firm and informed faith in the forgiver. So if you didn't know you were required to forgive, now you know you are. So it seems that the Lord piled on this multi-level responsibility to believers. Offenses will come, he says. Can't be avoided. Those who offend are guilty and deserving of punishment, yet the offended party still bears a great measure of responsibility in the matter. You know, when you're offended, you don't have the worldly luxury of playing the helpless victim whose tender feelings have been hurt. Forgiveness of the offender is not optional. The people of God may not hang on to offenses, but let them go. They must exercise the faith necessary to forgive even serial offenders, those who keep offending, it seems. Friends, the responsibility to forgive, as we've said, is not optional. It does not require a long process of apologies and assessments of apologies. You notice how that's done today, particularly in the public square? Politicians say these things, and for political purposes, they have to come out and apologize, and the whole woke crowd won't accept the apology. They have to reword it because they didn't say it enough, and they got to say it and say it and say it. We're not like that in the church. There's hardly an example of a high-level public apology that's not been coerced for political reasons. And you may have noticed that the woke police of our day are loath to accept apologies. There's no way back. Every sin's the unpardonable sin in our society today. I want to tell you, do not be like them. That's what Jesus is saying to us. We require that the offender apologize again and again and again when you know we meant what he said in the first place anyway. The offended party is allowed to state his or her offense over and over and over again. It's just too offensive. I can never get over it. We've become a society that has so lowered the bar as to what things should be considered offensive that we give them the name, have you heard this, microaggressions. Friends, if you're going to be offended, at least make it by a macroaggression. <laughs> Will you please micro? I can almost, there it is, there's the offense. That offends me. The Christian should not be stalking the brethren trying to become offended the way the world is. Real offenses, friends, are bad enough. Invented ones are scurrilous and unfair. The claim of the microaggression becomes an offense in and of itself because it's a trap set for the unwary person to walk in. Today it's about words. Oh, I didn't know that word went out of style. Had I known... I wouldn't have said it, therefore I apologize and I'll amend my ways. It's a trap, right? We can't be like that in the church. This is a place in the teaching where I'll insert the oft-repeated warning of Christ, do not be like them. So the disciples could see that such a burden would take a mature and informed measure of faith in order that we might live up to such a high standard. And so with all of this teaching and with all of this responsibility piled upon us, who would not plead what the apostles pleaded, Lord, increase our faith. And so the Lord, it seems, is pleased with their plea, and so he gives us this wonderful lesson on faith. He gives us this wonderful lesson on faith. And so he says this, again, note, note the conditional clause. If you have faith, as a mustard seed, you can say to, there must have been a mulberry bush there because he said, this mulberry bush, right? 
well, this mulberry bush, I guess it's a big bush. Um, if you have faith as a mustard seed, you can say, to, and the mustard seed, of course, is very small. It's a little micro thing, right? You can say to the mulberry tree, be pulled up by the roots and be planted in the sea, and it would obey you. In other words, faith is powerful. Now, I'll plead with the church today to recognize metaphor and hyperbole, even in the teaching of Jesus, all right? And this verse is a case in point, and I have to say there are whole denominations of Christianity who teach that such extraordinary illustrations of this are to be taken literally, and you've got people around yelling at mulberry trees. I refuse to defend such profitless teaching. That's not what it means. It's an illustration, all right? Our words will never make us mountain movers or landscapers uprooting trees and turning oceans into gardens. That's not the point. You know, when I came into the faith, I came in through the charismatic church, what has been disparagingly called the name it and claim it uh, movement. You know what I'm talking about. Your words are powerful. Just like God's, you call things into being with your words the way God does. And the preacher was giving this illustration of when he used his faith that way. And he said he was out on his ranch in Texas, right? And he was pulling fence posts, because that's what you do in Texas, right? You pull fence posts. And he was pulling it with his Jeep, and he had this brand new toe strap tied to the fence post, and he pulled it and pulled it, and he didn't realize he had a knot in, in his brand new toe strap. And it got so tight it wouldn't come undone, and he ruined the toe strap. No problem for a man of faith. He went over and commanded that the knot be loosed in the toe strap. That's when I knew he was a charlatan. Why didn't he just command the post to come out of the ground? In fact, why didn't he do it from his home and not waste the gas? Friends, it isn't about that, all right? The point is this, faith is not measured in quantity, a little tiny amount. If it's in existence, it can do the whole job. You don't need more of it, friends. Jesus said simply, if you have it, it'll do great things for you. And if I may give you a nod to the illustration of the uprooting of trees, I would say that forgiveness requires the believer to remove what the writer of Hebrew calls the root of bitterness that resides in the heart of the unforgiving. And so the writer said, pursue peace with all people and holiness without which no one will see the Lord, looking carefully, lest anyone fall short of the grace of God, lest any root of bitterness springing up cause trouble and by this become defiled. Familiar with the verse? The root of bitterness, friends, is metastasized unforgiveness. All right? The root of bitterness is metastasized unforgiveness. It, it's my observation that so many of the brethren walk through their lives with such a curable cancer as unforgiveness. You can cure it by your own will if you have the faith. The apostles recognized that lack within themselves. How could I forgive so many times, Lord, from the same offender? But the Lord tells them they have the tools within them that will accomplish the ta task, rather, and the primary tool is faith. So faith is a mustard seed. Faith in tiny amounts is adequate to the Lord's will. So it's not the amount of faith. It's the quality of the faith. And so your faith can be cultivated by the addition of other things. We add things to our faith that cultivate it, you see. The first is personal discipline, virtue. The Apostle Peter wrote this, Add to your faith virtue, he said. It's incumbent upon the disciple not to let his emotions rule his life. 
Think about your life. Take heed to yourself. Don't let your emotions rule your life. We're to be ruled by our intellect, and our emotions will get in line with that. Don't let your intellect get in line with your every wild emotional response to things. To paraphrase the teaching of Jesus, I'll say this. If you have faith as a mustard seed, you could say to your emotions, be thou taken up and cast into the sea, and your emotions would obey you. There's the mountain moving aspect of faith. It's within here. It's that root of bitterness, not the root of the mulberry tree. Remember, the Lord's weaving into the teaching the two concepts of faith and forgiveness. Somehow they're tied together. Friends, offenses come, but the person of faith does not have to receive them, much less let them rule him. Friends, you've been offended, but the offense should not rule your spirit. The frustration, the anger you might feel, the hurt you might feel, must not rule your spirit. So you've been hurt, you've been offended, but faith is the stronghold that will not let the offense rule your spirit. You have power over it. Faith is cultivated within us by other spiritual ingredients. Remember this teaching of Peter? Add to your faith, he said. And then he told us what to add to it. It's a number of things that bolster faith. Add to your faith virtue. To virtue, add knowledge. To knowledge, self-control. And then perseverance and godliness and kindness and, and love. Add these things to your faith, Peter said. For if these things are yours and abound, he wrote, you'll be neither barren nor unfruitful in the knowledge of our Lord Jesus Christ. Remember, we're trying to be fruitful. Remember the servant? He was an unprofitable servant. All he did was his duty. All he did was fulfill the agreement. If you abound in these things, you'll neither be barren nor unfruitful in these things. And he who is is short-sighted even to blindness and has forgotten that he was cleansed from his own sins. What's unforgiveness, friends? It's forgetfulness that you were forgiven. Forgetfulness that you already received that grace from God. And you're filled with the ability now to offer that to others. Forgetfulness, it seems, is a far more sinful thing than we might have presumed. Friends, that's why we come every Sunday. <laughs> Get reminded of stuff, Right? That's why Jesus stops by the side of the road. He's like, I rebuke the Pharisees, but let me make sure my troops are in order. Cultivate a faith that remembers, friends. And so I say to you again that the spiritual disciplines of worship and prayer and immersion in the written word and the proclaimed word are the very things that refine our faith. You can't cultivate an informed faith without spiritual discipline. Virtue, knowledge, self-control. That's what these things are. A refined faith is an impenetrable faith, friends. It's a shield of faith. It repels every fiery dart, right? As we said at the outset, faith should make us stronger, not weaker. The Apostle John put it very plainly. Whatever is born of God overcomes the world. And this is the victory that's overcome the world, our faith. Faith is impenetrable. Cultivate it in yourself. Don't let it lie fallow. Feed it with the word. Feed it with worship. And don't think you can get away without those things. So the Lord Jesus teaches his disciples on the necessity of cultivating forgiving hearts and the power of faith to accomplish this. And yet, he'll take it one step further. The teaching is to get even harder. Even though our faith may accomplish within us so great a thing as overflowing forgiveness, he yet refers to us as unfruitful disciples. We're still unfruitful. 
Even if we're successful in living up to the Lord's commandments, we have simply broken even. We do not achieve what the Roman church calls supererogation. You familiar with that term? I thought I'd throw that out there. Supererogation. You know the great saints. You know, not the, not the meager saints like us, but the ones that have the yellow ring. Those guys, and I don't disparage them, I'm just saying that depiction is just a little silly and unscriptural to me, but... They have, gained, they have done so many good works. They've way surpassed the good works it takes to get into heaven so they can give some to you. They can super arrogate their good works to you, poor miserable sinners who weren't naturally good enough like we were to get in on your own. Can you imagine such a depraved and superstitious thought as super arrogation? We've simply broken even, friends. The great saints have just broken even. There's no overflow of great works that accrue to your account. You don't get to crow in front of the judge when you get there. You've done what was your duty to do. And so we read this. Does the master thank the servant because he did the things that were commanded of him? I think not. So likewise, you, when you've done all those things which are commanded, say, we're unprofitable servants. We've done what was our duty to do. Friends, I hear employees all the time complain to me saying, you know, my boss never says thank you. That's how some guys are. And I answer such things like this. I say, well, I don't say to them, well, you know, your boss must be a terrible person. I would quit. I say to them, did he pay you? Did he pay you? If he says yes, then consider that he's honored his agreement with you. He required something of you. You required something of him in exchange. It's there. You're unprofitable. Profit is when you make something over that amount. That's the tip. <laughs> if he gives you a tip. When you're really good at your job, sometimes you get a tip. Um, Consider that he has honored his agreement with you. You have broken even. You did your work. You received your pay. It's an even exchange. Now, I know that we'd all like to have employers to be nice guys, and they should recognize the human resource that we are to them. They should be like that. I know that we live our jobs, and it's nice to feel appreciated and have a friendly work environment, all right? But that's not what the illustration is about. We're dealing with a text, all right? For our purposes of understanding the Lord's teaching, we should know that a duty accomplished is a break-even point in our faith, just as it is in our businesses. My father-in-law very wisely told me many times, you're not in business to break even. You're supposed to make money. Um, I tried to heed that advice. It never worked well for me, but I did my best. So I'm an unprofitable servant. It's like I worked and worked and worked, and I paid my bills. Nothing left over, Right? That's what he's talking about, only on a spiritual level. We've done what was our duty to do. Let's recognize one thing, though. The business illustration is so we can see clearly the life lesson that he's teaching here. He's not really teaching about business. It just works in the illustration. It's a life lesson. We live all our lives for Christ, and if we sincerely do it for Christ, then it's enough. I've known believers all my life who not only hold on to grudges and unforgiveness, but who spend much of their talk justifying themselves for their position. Can you imagine standing before the judge, Jesus Christ, and saying to him, I'm so glad to be here, Lord. I'm so glad you forgave me for all my wicked sins. And he says to you, what about this man that you haven't forgiven? Well, he offended me greatly, Lord. And then Jesus said, you offended me greatly. Are you going to tell me he offended you worse than your offense was to me, yet I forgave you? How do you even consider having this conversation with the Lord? We've done what was our duty to do. 
It's a life lesson, friends. Don't justify the grudge you hold. Get rid of it. You know what's interesting about forgiveness? And I don't talk a lot, or I don't, um, I don't um, lift up the whole science of psychoanalysis today, secular psychology. You know, I don't have a lot of respect for secular psychology, all right? I don't think Christians should receive psychological counsel from secular people. I just want you to know that. I know some of you do and some of you have, but I don't think that's a good idea because they're coming from a, from a place where they don't even know the power of faith that you have within you to tap into. They don't respect your God. They don't know him. That's not where you get your counsel. But having said that, it's interesting how much wisdom is still in certain schools of thought. Do you know you can go to a secular counselor and tell him about all the grudges you hold and all the hurt feelings you have, and what do you think he'll say? He'll say something like, you know, forgiveness is good for the soul. People figured that out, friends. Unburdening yourself of these things is good for you. Now, that's not where we stop. We don't do it because it's good for us, right? We don't worship on Sunday because man was designed to have a day of rest. That's not why we worship. We worship because God said, keep holy the Lord's day. That's why we worship. We don't forgive others because it's good for the soul. It is. But we forgive others because Jesus Christ forgave us and said to us, you must forgive others. Forgive us our trespasses as we forgive those who trespass against us. We do it because we're commanded. Jesus is talking about the servant who did what he was commanded to do. He may or may not have felt like doing it. He doesn't get into that. The Bible's a lot less touchy-feely than we are today. Don't you agree? So it's a life lesson. And people that justify their grudges, friends... I hear them, I know that their offenses are real, but I fear for their immortal souls. If I'm to take the teaching serious, they've not accomplished the simple tasks that their faith gave them the power to accomplish. They only needed this much, a mustard seed. They've not done their duty. They've not broken even. Friends, commandments are not easy things, but they're simple things. It's not easy to follow most or some of the commandments at least, right? I mean, thou shalt not covet. Have you ever coveted? It's hard to not covet, but it's a simple thing. Don't do it. The commandment's simple, right? Reigning in your tongue with regard to the Lord's name in vain may not be easy for some who've been accustomed to loose speech, but it's a simple command, simply stated. Take not the name of the Lord thy God in vain. What does that mean? Every time you say, oh my God, you're using his name in an empty fashion, and it's offensive to God and to some of the saints. So don't do it. It's part of speech. I understand. You've done it all your lives. You say these things. Don't say them. When you're astounded by something or when you're angry, you don't say God damn or Jesus Christ. You take in the name of the Lord thy God in vain. You see what I mean? Commandments are not easy, but they are simple. So we have another commandment for the, from the Lord. If your brother sins against you seven times in a day and seven times in a day returns to you saying, I repent, you shall forgive him. Sounds like a commandment. Difficult, but simply stated. The task is not an easy one, and the Lord readily admits it's not an easy one. It's nonetheless required. And he's not left us unaided in the task of finding the power to achieve it. Faith as a mustard seed is adequate to the task. It's not will I forgive or not. It's do I have faith or not. And so when you've achieved it, when you've let go of the grudge, when you've forgiven the brother for the asking, now it's time to what? Sound the trumpet, kill the fatted calf, eat and drink and be merry. No, it's time to sit down and know that you're still unfruitful. You've done what was your duty to do. And Jesus left on that note, so will I. 
Our Father, we praise you for the teaching of the Word of God. It is ever fresh in our minds as many times as we hear it. It is ever fresh. It is ever convicting. Oh, Father, increase our faith. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen.